Well, I don't know how many cards you receive in the mail or from family members and friends. I've learned over the years, uh, my family's taught me that some people will stand in stores for a long time just to find the perfect card. And so they don't say much on the card because they've taken all that time to do that. So they'll sign their name. My favorite cards to receive are the ones that have some kind of personal note on it, even if it's just a sentence uh, from the person sending the card. And and because it just stands out, it kind of completes the card. And so as we talk about the end of Galatians today, what I want you to see is in these last eight verses, Paul writes a personal note. And it really stands out. And it's like he's saying, I want to show you one last time what's important. So um, if you're uh, following along in the notes, what I hope you see this morning is that in these verses we're going to look at in just a minute, uh, Paul's closing words are heartfelt and in big letters. Paul's closing words are heartfelt and in big letters. Now, let me invite you to open up to Galatians chapter 6, 11 through 18, and we'll see what that means. And if you didn't bring a Bible with you, we we encourage you every week, be a first-hander with the Bible. Open it up, look at it yourself, put your finger on the page, and and be first-hander. And so we have black ones in the front of you there, hopefully in the seat rack, page 813. And if you did bring a Bible, it's about five-sixths of the way back. It's in the very back section of the Bible, Galatians chapter 6, verses 11 through 18. Now, while you're turning there, if you haven't been with us, we are finishing today a 10-week series called Free. It's a study in the letter to the Galatians. And um, again, if if you would turn your notes over to the back, let me just uh, show you there that we have a capsulization of where we've been these last nine or ten weeks, and we're going to finish that today. But in case you weren't here or in case you would ever have interest in listening to one of these messages, they're on our website, and they're always available to listen to free, no charge, and you could listen to those if that would be helpful to you. But if you turn your notes back over, what I hope you'll see is that When Paul writes in big letters here, what's that mean? Let me read verse 11. He actually starts this section. See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. See what large letters, what big letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. I don't know if you know this, but most of the New Testament letters were not written all in hand by Paul or Peter or John. Most of the time, they dictated these letters to someone that had secretarial skills that in in those days it was so expensive to write on different material that you needed someone that had not only a great skill to write clearly and quickly but also succinctly in, in in a small space so Paul says you can probably notice now that the letters have gotten a lot bigger and that's because I'm writing to you with my own hand now why did he do that some scholars have said maybe it was because of his reference earlier in this letter to having eye problems. Did he have an eye disease that made it hard for him and he had to write in big letters? Some would say, was it because he was a tent maker and therefore he wasn't used to writing a lot with his own hand as carefully as a writer would that was a secretary? Or is he doing this for emphasis? Most scholars would say that it may have been those other reasons, but it's probably especially because he wants to say, look, I'm going to take one last shot and I want you to understand what the, ascent, the essence of the Christian life is. Now, if you haven't been with us, what he's been doing is he's been writing this whole letter because 
some Gentile Christians. Have we all learned what the word Gentile means? If you've been here, a Gentile is anyone who's not? Right, so most of us are Gentiles, right? And uh, these Gentile Christians, when they became Christians, there were some people from Jerusalem and Judea that heard about that and immediately went up and said, no, and now that you're a Christian, you have to become Jewish too if you're going to be a full convert. And they began to just confuse these people like, what in the world does God want me to do? So Paul writes this letter to say, that's not what I taught you. Here's what the gospel is. And we've been talking about how the gospel is Christ plus nothing, but they were teaching another gospel, Christ plus the law of Moses, Christ plus circumcision, every Jewish person would go through. So again, Paul's doing that. Now, uh, if you're following along, what I hope you'll see in these closing eight verses is that Paul emphasizes with those big letters the surprising pathway to freedom. What do I mean surprising? I don't know if you know this, but it's a paradox of how we become free. Most of us think we become free by having our own way and doing whatever we want. But Paul says that's, obviously that leads to bondage. Jesus even said it's a paradox. If you would come after me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me for whoever would save their life will lose it. But whoever is willing to lose their life for my sake, you'll find it. Then he says, what happens if you gain the whole world? What if you were able to get everything the world says is important and valuable, but you lost your soul? Would that be a good trade? He said, no. So Jesus was teaching this paradox, this surprising pathway to freedom. And Paul says that the pathway he leads us to and through is the cross of Jesus Christ. <laughs> the instrument that he uses to set us free is the most unlikely thing, this symbol of execution and suffering. He uses the cross. So I want to ask you, if you would, uh, to read um, some of this with me, read through this. We're going to mainly focus on verses 14 and 15. And um, what I want you to see is, that if let me just turn to Acts 15 for a second and tell you that what this letter to Galatians, what was going on, was also going on if you ever read Acts 15. This was evidently happening in the church. Once people became Christians, the whole thing was, what makes me acceptable before God? What makes us right with God? Is it what I do? Is it what God does? Is it a mix? What is it? And so Acts 15.1, look at what it says. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. So then they had this whole Jerusalem council where Peter and Paul and Barnabas all share and James, the leader of the church, and they basically say, look, it's by grace. It's by the grace of what Jesus Christ has done and putting our faith in him and what he's done that saves us, not by what we do. And they eventually wrote a letter that says, we understand some people that we did not send are troubling you in your faith and confusing you. So Paul does the same thing in this letter, and we see that same message. So let me just um, read verse 12 and 13, because now Paul's going to, in this closing eight verses, he's going to talk about these teachers that caused him to write this whole letter in the first place. He says, those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised keep the law. 
Yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. Now, he says, here's what they're bragging about. Here's what they're boasting about. They're proud of what they've done, and they want you to follow them so they can become proud of you. And they also are taking this route because they can avoid persecution, he says. So evidently, there's more than one way to boast. There's two ways to boast, and Paul talks about that in this passage. And that's what I want to unpack with you now. So would you read verse 14 with me out loud? They're on the notes in the gray box, and we're going to talk about what Paul came to boast in. Let's read it. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Would you drop down and read verse 15 with me? It doesn't matter whether we have been circumcised or not. What counts is whether we have been transformed into a new creation. And then I'll read the rest of this and we'll unpack it. So verse 16, peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, this standard, because they are the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Let me pause for a second. I, when I was in college, there was a man that came and spoke, a pastor that came and spoke in our chapel. He was from Romania. And he had been in prison a number of times just for preaching like what I'm doing right now. And can you imagine a church service like this? All of a sudden, soldiers came in. They put him in handcuffs, took him away, and they kept him in prison for over a year or several months at a time. Mistreated him, didn't treat him kindly, and all because he was teaching a message they didn't, they didn't appreciate. Now, when this guy spoke in chapel, let me just say that he had credibility in my eyes. Because he wasn't one of these people that was just going, hey, here's a, here's a great way to follow Jesus. It wasn't like that. He was going, look, this stuff's tested. I understand what I'm talking about. Paul says, I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Even in the Galatian province of these people he's writing to, they remember that in Lystra he had been stoned almost to death and left for dead outside the city. They knew he had marks on his body from rocks, whips, all kinds of things that he'd gone through to bring this message to them. So then he says this at the end. He says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen. He started by greeting them. May the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ be yours. And he ends with the grace. You know, the Christian life from beginning to end is God's undeserved, unmerited favor upon our lives. It's only because of his goodness to us that we can even be followers of his. So look at the two ways he talks about boasting. What does that mean to boast? If you're following along, you'll see that the boast, uh, most of the time when we think of boasting, we think what? Of talking, right? It's, it's, uh, we hear someone going, well, blah, blah, like that, and then we think they're just being real proud because they're boasting. But boasting, before it ever becomes talking, starts by the way we think, starts by what's in our heart. Jesus says the only thing that can come out of your mouth is what's already in your heart. So boasting has a lot more to do with how we think than it does just about talking. And notice if you're following along that boast means to glory in, to live for, to give importance to. It means whatever we revel in, trust in, glory in, live for, or give importance to. Paul says, you know, here's what I used to put my confidence in. And this guy that's writing this letter, he was like the ultimate religious green beret. I mean, this guy, 
he could have bragged about all kinds of stuff. He could have said, I, I can boast about my background. I can boast about the purity of my faith. I can boast about all these things. He said, that's what I used to boast in. I don't boast in that anymore. He says, that's what I used to think was important. That's what I used to live for. And now all that's changed now that I've met Jesus Christ. And so when you and I boast, what is it? What is it that is the most important to you? What do you revel in? What do you obsess about? Whatever you think about most of the time, that's what you boast in. Whatever is on your mind most of the time, that's what you boast in. It may be good things like your family. It may be good things like your job. It may be good things. It may be absolutely immoral things. But whatever you boast in, that is what makes your life spin. And Paul says, I used to boast in some different things, no more. And he said, what these people that are trying to mess with you are doing is they're boasting about circumcision. Now let me just talk to you about circumcision. Now first I'll give you a definition and then explain a little better. Circumcision, in a way, is a way of speaking. It, it means outward markings or human achievement. Outward markings or human achievement. Way back in the Old Testament, when Abraham began to follow God and his descendants began to follow God, he gave them a sign of his covenant with them. He said, now I want you to circumcise your bodies. And most of us get really uncomfortable when we talk about this subject. Because we understand that it has something to do with cutting on our bodies. The idea is that it is the cutting away of the foreskin or a certain amount of flesh on a, a person's uh, you know, private parts. And you go, whoa, whoa, whoa. And what happened is, is I have no idea, but it became a symbol of whether or not you were belonged to God or not. I have no idea how they found this out about each other. Are you circumcised? I don't know. I have no idea. But I do know this that when David was fighting Goliath and he's running towards, remember the five smooth stones and the slingshot thing? This nine, ten-foot guy? When he's running towards Goliath, he calls him an uncircumcised Philistine. And what he means is you're outside of a relationship with God and God has given us the sign of his relationship with us. And so it was a way of speaking God gave circumcision only as a sign. It wasn't meant to be the whole deal. He wanted our hearts to have any flesh cut away that was making us unresponsive to him. It was to be an outward sign of an inward reality. But they had turned it into something that goes, I'm better than you. And it divided people. And they were doing all this kind of stuff. So circumcision became an outward marking in which made people pride or it Circumcision stands for anything that enables me to say, look at what I did. Circumcision was performed by humans on humans. It was an outward thing. It was human. And again, when you and I live by boasting and circumcision, we can do it religiously or irreligiously. Nowadays, it's really popular to say, well, I'm not a religious person, and that's okay. But all of us, all of us, look for certain ways to validate ourselves. And we often use status symbols or outward markings or outward identification things. Or we say, look at what I did. Look at how I've achieved this. Look at what I've acquired. And again, all of that is boasting in circumcision. So you and I, when we think about standing before God one day, and the Bible says we're all going to give an account for him. I don't know if you believe that or not. But if you stand before God one day, and he said, why? Should I let you into heaven in a relationship with me for eternity? If the very first thing you're planning on saying is, I, 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 
I, you're in trouble. You're boasting in circumcision. You're boasting in human achievement. You're boasting in what you do. And yet, that's what I experience a lot when I talk with people, both inside and outside the church, is, uh, well, I'm a good person, or, well, I went to church, or, well, I did this. I, 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 I. I boast in circumcision is really what that's like saying. I boast in what human beings can do. But Paul says, I used to boast like that. I now see it so clearly. I didn't realize what I was doing. He says, now I boast in the cross. I boast in the cross. So if you're following along, here's what I hope you see, is that circumcision is basically saying, look, what Christ did for me on the cross, that's nice, that's very helpful, but it's plus what I do. And when you and I mix what Christ did for us plus what I do, we may think that that's actually making it better, but it actually makes it false. It actually takes away the gospel. Here's what Paul says in another case. He says, look, if it wasn't absolutely necessary for Christ to be crucified on the cross to make us right with God, <laughs> then he died, he wasted his time. If it wasn't enough, if the cross wasn't enough, then everything we add to it makes it look like Jesus' death on the cross was only a rabbit's foot or a little help. But it's so much more than that. And again, he said, the reason why these guys are teaching you it's Christ plus what I do or what you do is because it means unpersecuted self-salvation. Unpersecuted. Do you realize that it's actually popular in this world to mix religion and what we do, our moral performance? Listen to what Tim Keller writes. He says, the preaching of the gospel... Well, actually, I'm going I'm to wait for a second. I'm sorry. I'm a little... Uh, little scatterbrain here. Let me just go on and talk about the cross first. If, if we talk about boasting and circumcision, what's the alternative? Paul says the only other alternative is to boast in the cross, and that's God's son's self-denying atonement, toning death for us if you're following along. It's God's son's suffering, self-denying, atoning death for us. When you think of the cross, he doesn't mean something that people wear on their necklace. He doesn't necessarily even mean this physical cross. What he's talking about is he's saying, what was the truth that the cross stands for? What was God doing? The Bible says Christ was doing some kind of work on the cross for us. That his death for us was meant to do something we could not do. But what was it? And again, the Bible says that when you and I put our trust in what Jesus Christ, God's Son, did in his atoning death for us, that's boasting in the cross. And again, if you're following along, notice that Christ plus nothing I do equals God's salvation that offends. Christ plus nothing I do equals God's salvation that offends. How to spell that is O-F-F-E-N-D-S, by the way, how I'm saying that. Look here at 1 Corinthians 1.23, if you would, on the screen. When we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are what, friends? Offended. And the Gentiles say what? It's all nonsense. Do you, do you realize, I mean, I, I dare you to go into a break room. I dare you to go into a locker room. I dare you to have a conversation with someone today and say, do you realize that the way that God makes us right with him is not because of anything we do, but because of what he did through Jesus on the cross. Most people, they can't stand that message. And uh, this is what Tim Keller says about that. 
He says, the preaching of the gospel is terribly offensive to the human heart. People find it insulting to be told that they are too weak and sinful to do anything to contribute to their salvation. The gospel is offensive to liberal-minded people who charge the gospel with intolerance because it states that the only way to be saved is through the cross. The gospel is offensive to conservative-minded people because it states that without the cross, good people are in as much trouble as bad people. Ultimately, the gospel is offensive because the cross stands against all schemes of self-salvation. The world appreciates religion and morality in general. The world thinks that moral religion is a good thing for society, but the world is offended by the cross, so people who love the cross are persecuted. The cross is by nature offensive, and we can only grasp its sweetness if we first grapple with its offense. If someone understands the cross, it is either the greatest thing in their life or it is repugnant to them. It is neither of those, if it is neither of those two things, then they haven't understood the cross at all. So when you and I begin to realize what Jesus is saying here is you're in bigger trouble than you ever imagined you were in your relationship with God and your moral standing before him, your own performance. You have fallen far short of God's perfect and holy standard. But also in the cross, he says, but I care about you and I am paying for your sin and your broken relationship with God so you can be in a right relationship with me. What I'm doing is enough. Now look at the gospel. We talked about this last week. Look at this definition of the gospel. I find this powerful. It says, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Has God allowed you to see that in yourself? Have you noticed that about yourself? By the time I was 15, I knew this was absolutely true about me. No one had to tell me. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared to hope. On the cross, he is showing us who we really are, and that is humbling. We get whittled down to size when we stand before the cross because we overrate ourselves. We think we're more righteous than we are. We think we're more moral and more standing than we are. And God just says, wait, that's not the way to have a relationship with me. But my son is going to make a way for you to have a relationship with me. And so it's offensive. Have you ever found yourself offended by this message that the only way you can be made right with God and acceptable in his sight is to put your trust in the work of another instead of the work of yourself. What these teachers were teaching is this. If you believe and obey, then you'll be saved. Paul said, no, the gospel is, if you believe and trust and depend in Christ, you will be saved. And then you'll obey, but you'll obey from a different motivation. And that kind of by faith and by trusting in Christ and his grace for us on the cross, that's what opens up everything. So when we talk about the cross, friends, let me just say this, that Paul said this, here's what I'm going to do the rest of my life. I'm going to boast, I'm going to glory in, I'm going to trust in, I'm going to revel in, I'm going to live for, I'm going to give importance to the cross. It is going to be the center of my life. Jesus and what he's done for me is going to be the cross. And it's going to be the center of my life. And he said, that is because I'm learning so much about the cross. If you look up here on the screen, you'll see a graphic of a diamond. 
I've been trying to think of this way, how I could talk to you about this. In a church like this, some of you have grown up your whole life and you've heard messages about the cross hundreds of times. But maybe if you're like me, you reduce that down to just one dimension. That whenever you hear the cross, you go, yeah, Jesus forgave me for my sins so I can go to heaven. Praise God. And let me just say something. Praise God. That's huge. But that's just one facet of the diamond. Paul says, the more that I go, get to know the Lord, I realize that that moment when Christ died on the cross and said, it is finished, that something began to break wide open, more than I could have ever imagined. Something got released on that day and that moment towards people, towards us, that is still flowing, it is still rippling, and we're going to spend all of eternity grasping all that Christ did in that moment. And it's way more than forgiveness, friends. It's way more than forgiveness. Steve taught us this a few weeks ago. Salvation is so multifaceted. Not only in the gospel do we learn that we can be justified, that we can be validated, that we can be accepted by what Jesus has done. That's great. But also then, he, come, he died like that so that he can now live in us so that we can be sanctified and transformed. And this gradual process of becoming more like him in character. Real deal stuff. And it will not be perfected until one day when we're glorified in heaven and we will have new bodies and we will have no more sin, no more crying, no more death, no more suffering. That's a phenomenal thing. But on the cross, what Jesus was saying is, what I did for you is like a diamond. And the more that you look to the cross and what I've done for you, the more you understand it, the more you'll be full of thanks and humility, not pride, not division, not hatefulness, not looking down at people you will find yourself going, oh my goodness, this is amazing grace. Amazing. I don't deserve any of this, but he did all of this for me. In the Old Testament, when the uh, Israelites were going through the desert, they ran out of water. And when there's a million or two million of you and you have animals, that's a problem. And uh, God said to Moses, I'm going to provide for you right here in the desert. I want you to take your staff and I want you to strike that big rock and when you do, water will gush out and I will provide for my people miraculously. And what happened is that the Bible says is on the day that Christ was struck on the cross for us, a fountain began to flow towards us that we did not deserve. And yet God wanted us to experience it. Fanny J. Crosby, the blind hymn writer, said it this way, Jesus, keep me near the cross. There a precious fountain, free to all a healing stream, flows from Calvary's mountain. In the cross, in the cross, be my glory ever, till my raptured soul shall find rest beyond the river. In the cross. So let me just tell you three things that are opened up to us, and there's a whole lot more, but let me just move through that quickly. First, Paul says this, is that Jesus died on the cross to give us freedom to be a new creation on the inside. The freedom to be a new creation on the inside. He says, look, it doesn't matter whether we've been circumcised on the outside or not. What counts, verse 15, is whether we've been transformed into a new creation. Let me ask you this. Have you been born again? You cannot be born again by your own work. It is a supernatural, invisible, 
inside, miraculous work that only God can do by his grace. But the Bible says is as you and I look to Jesus Christ, as we revel in, trust in, glory in, live for, give importance to his cross, out of his own goodness, he makes us a new creation. That's what 2 Corinthians 5.17 means. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if they're putting their trust in Christ, they are a new creation. Friends, I, I don't know about you. I need his new creation in me. I lived my life as a pastor's kid. I tried to do all kinds of stuff, and I realized that I didn't need a car wash. I needed a new heart. I didn't just need to have some stuff kind of wiped away from my life. I needed a different heart, a different spirit, a different motivation. I needed something from the inside out, not the outward markings, not human achievements, but what God in his grace could achieve in my life by only his miraculous power. And I ask you again, when Jesus said you must be born again, have you been? By now, you've probably lived long enough to know whether or not you're faking it or whether or not he really has done that gracious work. How does that happen? Only by humbling ourselves and saying, God, I'm putting down my human efforts and I'm trusting in what you alone can do on the inside of my life. Will you, by your grace, make me a new creation based on the merits of Jesus' work on the cross? And you can be born again today. Amazing miracle, but only he can do it. I can't do it. Your parents can't do it. You can't do it. But God can, and he wants to. The second thing is that Jesus' cross opened up freedom from the world and its value system. Freedom from the world and its value system. Can I just stop and say something to you? I am so grieved the longer I live and watch people that are tossed upon the waves of the world's value system. I, I am so brokenhearted by the way I see young girls try and live under some kind of value system that tells them what makes them valuable. I'm so tired of seeing people literally wreck their families by chasing after the world's values because they believe it's what's valuable and they can't even see straight. So when Paul says this in verse 14, if you look up here on the screen, I love how the New Living Translation says it. He says this, As for me, may I never boast about anything from now on except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of that cross, my interest in this world has been crucified. And the world's interest in me has also died. He's basically saying, look, I understand. I'm not real popular anymore. Lost a lot of points with the world when I put my trust in Christ. That's okay with me. He's not saying I, my interest in people in the world has been crucified. He's not saying my interest in the nature of the world has been crucified. He's saying my interest in the value system of this world has been put on the cross with Jesus and it's been put to death. So that now... I no longer have to be driven by that, but now I can look at the world with new eyes. Now I can see people in the world and care about them instead of being controlled by them. Now I can see all this differently. And he says, the freedom that this has made in my life is huge. The third thing he says is it gives us freedom to deny ourselves or even suffer for his glory. It gives us the freedom to deny ourselves and even suffer for his glory. When Jesus laid his back on the cross, it was the ultimate act of humbling himself and submitting himself to God's will of denying himself. Not my will, Father, but yours be done. To a person that is still being controlled by the world, that sounds like terrible, 
terrible news. Deny myself. Freedom comes by gratifying myself. Freedom comes by getting what I want. We've all thought this way. And the truth is, you begin to just live for your own self-gratification, you're trapped. You're a slave. You're a slave to your own desires. You're a slave to what other people want. And Jesus came and said, no, no, here's how you become free. Deny yourself. Take up your cross like I did and follow me. And I will give you my Holy Spirit who will give you not only the power to deny yourself, but he'll help you see how beautiful it is. Have you ever seen someone that denied themselves in order to say yes to God or in order to do what he wanted? It's beautiful. It's not ugly. It's beautiful. But most of us, we've had our heads screwed around by the world's value system and by our own flesh. But now the cross can set us free and show us the beauty of self-denial and even the courage that Jesus had to go all the way up the hill and die. He wasn't afraid to lay his life down because for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning at shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. Praise his name. And Paul said, look, I bear a lot of marks on my body. I'm not saying that to show off. I just want you to know the cross set me free. I'm not afraid of suffering anymore. I don't invite it. I don't seek it, but I'm not afraid of it. Because knowing Jesus, even in the middle of that suffering, is more powerful than any day I lived where I got my own way. Man, freedom. So I want you just to fill in this last line of the notes, and then I want to talk to you about how the cross might make a difference in your life and mine. Jesus, teach me to boast in what you've done in your cross. Jesus, teach me to boast in what you've done in your cross. I got to just tell you, as I was reading Paul's words this week, as for me, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of that cross, my interest in the world has been crucified and the world's interest in me has also died. Man, when I was reading that this week, I thought, I feel like a kindergartner, a first grader, don't you? Have you ever stopped to think about all the ways the cross changes people? I'll just give you a few. This week when I went to pray, I don't know what you're like during any given week, but I've learned that I'm awful fickle. We talked about that conflict between the flesh and the spirit sometimes. So sometimes when you've been living more by the flesh than the spirit, you may say, do I even have a right to pray anymore? I'm so fickle. And then the Lord reminded me, every time we bow our heads and pray, we pray in the name and the character and the work and the merits of Jesus Christ. I have no, I have no ability to approach God on my own merits, but Jesus said, approach him in my merits. Trust in what I've done. And we've talked about how through what Jesus has done, you and I can be accepted, adopted, given his Holy Spirit as a gift. He can give us new desires, new motivations. Now we want to obey. And even when we struggle to obey, we have his help. It's a completely different thing. And so some of you have noticed how it's changed your marriages and your family life. When you get really proud and you power up with each other or you just fall back into ways where you're still trying to serve yourself. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. There have been so many times where God said, don't do it that way anymore, Jeff. Do it my way. Remember the cross. And Jesus humbles my pride. There's been times where people who have been absolutely hateful and racist have understood that when Jesus spread his arms out like this, he was saying, 
I do this for every person that has ever lived. I love every person. There is no person that you and I have ever met that does not matter to God. The cross says that. And that begins to enlarge my puny heart and puts in there a love that I was first given by the cross to pass on other people. The cross can help you bear up under suffering. It can make you courageous. It can help you persevere when you want to quit. The cross can do so many things. You can see servant-heartedness in the cross. One last thing. The cross, when you begin to reflect on it and meditate on what Jesus has done, he'll change everything. Corey Tenboom was in the concentration camp of Ravensbrück with her sister, and every Friday they had to march in front of grinning guards naked. It was one of the most humiliating things to have that medical inspection, and they dreaded it. One day as they were walking through, they weren't allowed to cover themselves. One day as they were walking through, Corey all of a sudden hit her. He hung on the cross naked for me. And she whispered to Corey, they took his clothes too. He whispered to Betsy, and Betsy said, oh, Corey, and I never thanked him. And it didn't take away the horror of what they were facing, but it gave them power to live in Christ's power. Oh, friends, what got released that day is still flowing. Is it flowing your way? Have you received him? I pray that you'll boast in the cross. We wanted to close today by just celebrating the power of the cross and what Jesus Christ has D-O-N-E for us. Religion is spelled D-O. Christianity is spelled D-O-N-E. What are you putting your trust in? What are you boasting in? Let's glorify Christ and glory in him right now. What a love. What an unbelievable cost. Henry Blackaby says, every circumstance you face, see the cross behind it. You will never be more loved than you already are in Christ. You know, people say, well, how do I know if the cross is really powerful in my life? You'll walk around a lot more thankful and a lot more humble every time you realize what Jesus has done. Your heart will grow. You'll find yourself responsive to his Holy Spirit. This is what you and I can do when we boast in the cross. And we can share it with a world that's boasting in something else. Christ is worth it all, friends. He is the essence of the Christian life. So let me just pray for you as you go. Now, Lord, we remember that if there is no cross of Christ, there is no forgiveness of sin. If there is no cross of Christ, there is no acceptance before God. We are not adopted. We do not have your Holy Spirit making us new people. And we have no hope for the future. But praise your name. You did the work of the cross. Your river flows towards us, and I pray that it will bless many today and strengthen the faith of many believers as well. In your name we pray. Amen. I'll be standing down front if anyone wants to talk.